0: Yes, Genesis chapter 14 This is on uh, page 14 in the Church Bible Or page 18 in the large print Genesis 14 At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar Arioch king of Elassar Cador Laumer, king of Elam And Tidal, king of Goyim These kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom Birsha king of Gomorrah Shenab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboyim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years, they had been subject to Kedor Laomer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kedor Laomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtaroth-Karnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shavei-Kiriathayim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazin Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kador lamar king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Alassar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled into the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Anar, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, North of Damascus He recovered all the goods And brought back his relative Lot and his possessions Together with the women and the other people After Abram returned from defeating Cador Laumer And the kings allied with him The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, That is the king's valley Then Melchizedek, king of Salem Brought out bread and wine He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Anur, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. This is God's word. Thanks very much,
1: Steve. Not an easy passage to read, so well done. (laughs) Great to see you all. With um, three teenage boys, when it comes to choosing a film to watch as a family, um, sadly Liz doesn't really get much of a say in that. Um, Films like La La Land don't tend to feature too highly in the Turton home. It's more often or not gonna be action and adventure. Um, James Bond or Star Wars, something like that or something like this story in Genesis 14 because this has all the hallmarks of a great action film, doesn't it? They've got a big superpower taking over some small principalities and expecting regular payment Magnificent Seven comes to mind or for Disney fans, uh, Bugs Life remember those nasty grasshoppers but these small principalities rise up and try to throw off the shackles of their rulers. But how dare they do that? So the armies of the big superpower come back in force to, to show who is boss going on a conquering spree of other territories before they arrive and reestablish control and carry off their, their booty and a load of hostages. But even more exciting, we have a rescue attempt. We love those, don't we? I wonder how many films you can think of where there's been a hostage situation. Don't start thinking now, maybe leave that till later on. Um, but in this case, a small unit of what are described as specially trained men. Ancient day SAS. Go in search of their man and bring him back to safety. You could make a great film out of it, couldn't you? You can cut out a bit of the end, because that's just a little bit weird to stick to the action. But of course, the weird bit at the end is actually the most important, as we shall see. Before we get into the story, let's remind ourselves of what happened uh, last week in chapter 13, for those who, who weren't here, previously in Genesis. Abraham... And his nephew Lot decide to separate. Because between them they just had too much livestock. And it was causing tension between the herdsmen. It was an amical separation. Abraham gave Lot first choice. But in making his decision, the main factor for Lot was how fertile was the land. He failed to consult with the Lord I failed to take into account other important considerations like whether that place would help him and his people come closer to the Lord and so we were told um, back in verse uh, 13 of chapter 13 um, or verse 12 rather, Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom and then we had that little verse and verse 13. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. It's one of those short little verses which sets off warning bells all over the place. But the chapter finished with God repeating his blessing of land and offspring to Abraham, And Abraham going, um, verse 15, to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. So even though Lot doesn't appear to have made a particularly wise decision, the chapter ends peacefully enough. So it's a bit of a shock when we come in to chapter 14. There's no easing the reader gradually into this. And although we've experienced murder in in the Bible already by this stage, we now have the first mention of war between nations. So who are all these kings with unpronounceable names? And where do they all come from? Well, the places mentioned where these uh, kings uh, come from, Shinar, El- Elassa, Elam, and Goyim. I believe to be in this area where Abraham's um, family came from originally, over here. Do you remember Abraham came from Ur originally? Um, so that's where these these kings are. And as part of their, their empire building, they venture down to the area uh, where Sodom is believed to be located, around here, in the south of the, the, the Dead Sea area in Canaan. And even with five kings joining forces down there in Sodom, they were unable to match the power of this invading army. And so for 12 years, they become subjects, subjects to Ketalauma, uh which have meant paying their tributes each year, until they got fed up with this arrangement. And the 13th year, we're told, they rebelled. There was an uprising. Maybe Keralauma sent his men to get the payment, and they refused to pay. Um, maybe some troops stationed um, uh, in those countries, and they rose up and kicked them out of the country. Yet doesn't respond immediately. It takes time to consider his response. Maybe he just tweets uh, the missiles are coming or, or something like that, and just lets them stew for a while. But the next year, he gets all his Allied forces together and they head south. And on the way, they defeat a number of different people groups, uh, the Rephites in Ashtaroth Karaim. Let's just move on to this is uh, the route. They take coming down and defeating these various armies right down to El Paran near the desert. And then we're told they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who were living at Hazazon Tamar. So they'd come back up, conquered these guys, and are now about here. So they're on a bit of a roll. Five kings in the area of Sodom would have heard about it and they've prepared their troops for war. And so we're told in verse 8, they marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim. We're not told much about the battle except in verse 10, now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. And then they went away. Sounds like it was a pretty swift victory. And had it stopped there, that would probably have been the last we would have heard of it. They would have taken their spoils back to where they came from. And the countries would have just been subject to them for another 12 years or so, however long. But unbeknownst to them, they made a fatal mistake. Because verse 12 says they also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. The last thing we we were told about Lot was that he pitched his tents near Sodom. Now he's living in Sodom. We mentioned before that he was putting himself in in spiritual danger, but here it becomes clear that he's also putting himself in in physical danger as he becomes a casualty of the war. So what happens next? Well, we have a rescue attempt. A man escapes, maybe one of Lot's people, and and runs to tell Abraham what has happened. What is Abraham's response? Well, he could have responded in a number of different ways, couldn't he? He could have said, well, that was Lot's choice to go and settle in Sodom. He could have said, well, there's nothing I can do against armies of that size. They are simply too large. But no, verse verse 14 says, When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out, The 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Dan is um, up here on the map. So it's quite a journey they had to undertake. When they get there, it says, during the night, Abraham divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobar north. Of Damascus up that top there. So this is not just a quick smash and grab raid, grab your man and bring him back. He sends this powerful army packing so they don't come back. And he returns with everything he set out for. It says in verse 16, he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. So this really is mission accomplished. And again, you could end the story there, but instead we have a report of Abraham's meeting with two kings. Verse 17: After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the kings' valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham. But what is the significance of these two kings coming out to meet Abraham? I want to start with Melchizedek. Look at what he does and what he says. The first thing he does is bring a blessing. It's a physical blessing of bread and wine. Refreshments for Abraham and his exhausted men. But it also brings a spiritual blessing. Verse 19. Melchizedek blessed Abraham saying blessed be Abraham by God most high creator of heaven and earth and praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand he's saying that Abraham is blessed that the blessing comes from God and the nature of that blessing is that God has delivered Abraham's enemies into his hands now, up to this point, we may have been wondering, how did Abraham rescue Lot? Was he brave? Was he reckless? Or was he a military genius? Well, he may have been any of these, but the most important thing is that it was God who made the rescue possible. And what we see here is an explicit link between rescue and blessing. And God said to so remember chapter 12, God said to Abraham, uh, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you you might have thought, well, what would that blessing look like exactly? The greatest blessing that any of us can receive is to be rescued. And the gospel is good news of Jesus' rescue. As it says in Galatians 3, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So that promise of blessing is a promise of rescue. Now, we love to hear stories of rescue, don't we? Uh, One of the greatest rescues in history um, was that of of Dunkirk, which has been made into a a recent film. 338,000 troops rescued from death or captured by German troops by a flotilla of 800 vessels, uh, including pleasure yachts, shipping um, boats, uh, fishing boats, All sorts. Recently in France, there was another rescue. A fanatical Islamist took a number of people hostage. And Arnaud Beltram, a Christian police colonel, voluntarily took the place of one of those hostages. In the process, he saved the life of that hostage, but lost his own. And the sacrifice of that police officer reminds us of Another amazing rescue in the Bible that also involved a sacrifice. It was performed by by one man, and he didn't just rescue one person, he rescued the whole of humankind, even though they didn't really deserve to be rescued. That rescue, of course, was the rescue of humankind from sin and God's judgment. Like Lot, we went our way trusting in ourselves and our judgment, and valuing other things more than God's blessing. And continuing down that path, we would have faced God's wrath, his judgment. But in his mercy, even though we didn't deserve it, he rescued us by sending Jesus to take the punishment that we deserved. He gave up his throne in heaven to die for us on a cross. And he didn't just rescue those who deserve to be rescued, because none of us did. He rescued those who have acknowledged their need to be rescued. Last year, the, the British explorer Benedict Allen was uh, rescued from uh, Papua New Guinea. Uh, an interview later, he said, I didn't get lost. Um, I always knew exactly where I was. Uh, Things began to go wrong. There were massive storms, Uh, a vine bridge that was meant to be across uh, a river was swept away, so I was slowed down. Uh, Then I started to feel the symptoms of malaria. My mosquito net wasn't functional, my malaria tablets were all sodden, so I wasn't able to take the treatment. Uh, And then the final straw, I discovered that there was a war ahead. Uh, They were fighting, so I couldn't get out. Fortunately for him, the helicopter came and rescued him. Um, But he said he got into the helicopter for the sake of his family, who were worried for him. But he still said, I wasn't lost. I wasn't expecting to be rescued. I never asked to be rescued. If the helicopter hadn't arrived, I could have walked to safety. Jesus came to rescue humankind. And yet still many people say... I'm not lost. I don't need to be rescued. There are many who haven't realized their need to be rescued. Some of you maybe here this morning haven't yet seen that need. But Jesus' death was sufficient for you. He came to rescue you. Will you accept his, his rescue? Let's go back to, <coughs> to the story. Lot is rescued with, with others. Amazingly he goes back to Sodom, because that's where we find him later in chapter nineteen, and you would have thought he would have probably have learned his lesson, but fortunately God is patient with us. But is it too much of a leap to make the link between the rescue of Lot and the rescue of humankind by Jesus? Well, I don't think it is. And the reason is because of this person, Melchizedek. The name means king of righteousness. He's also the king of Salem, which means king of peace. And the two go together because righteousness means being at peace with God. And only Jesus has been, has made that possible for us. But Melchizedek carries greater significance than that because although he suddenly appears out of nowhere, he blesses Abraham, he receives a tithe, and then disappears, That's not the last time we hear of him again in the pages of the Bible. If you want your Bibles handy, let's turn to Psalm 110. Page uh, 613 of the Church Bibles. And verse 1 of Psalm 110 says, The Lord sits, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now this psalm's written by David, who is a king. Um, it's just a strange statement, isn't it? We know who the Lord is—that's God, the covenant name for God—but who is the other Lord? Who is David's Lord? Well, we won't go there now, but we learn later. Have a look in later in Acts chapter two that he's talking about Jesus. So if God is talking to Jesus, what he also says in verse 4 of Psalm 110 is to Jesus. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So what does that mean, Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek? Well, for that, we need to go to another passage in the Bible, uh, this time to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Um, just turn with me, if you'd like, to that. Page 1205 from the Church Bibles, right at the end of the Bible. the last verse of chapter 6 says, Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then going into chapter 7, we are reminded of who Melchizedek was. It says, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. That doesn't mean Melchizedek didn't have a human father or mother. We just aren't told who who they are. But Jesus is like Melchizedek. He's like Melchizedek in three ways. First of all, he too is greater than Abraham. The one who's been blessed by by God. He too is greater than any human priest. A priest is an intermediary between God and his people. The human priests performed sacrifices on behalf of the people to atone for their sins, to enable them to worship at God. But that was a temporary system that had to be performed time after time. Whereas Jesus performed one sacrifice, the sacrifice of his own perfect life, which was sufficient to deal with all sins for all time. And unlike the the human priests who, who all died, Jesus still lives and he will live forever. So he is the great high priest. The one who continues to intercede on our behalf with the Father on account of what he did on the cross. He too is greater than any other human king. Hebrews 8 says, We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is a high priest forever, which means you can have a relationship with God forever. And that is great news, isn't it? This is small little encounter, which seems so incidental after the, uh, the great stories of, uh, of wars and things, is incredible news. This is about uh, eternity. There's a whole lot of um, world politics going on in this chapter of the Bible, isn't there? And the meeting between these three people might seem insignificant, but it is more important than anything else because it's part of God's plan of salvation for humankind. And it shows the relationship that Abraham has with God and that each one of us can have with God. I was sat um, yesterday morning on my um, exercise bike watching newswatch and if you any of you watch that um I wouldn't normally watch it it just happens to be on while I'm on the bike um describes how um the BBC has covered the news events of that particular week and uh, different people write in and uh, one person um, wrote in, it's usually Mr. Angry, the, the writes in, and um, this particular person was quite irate by the fact that he was saying, we've got all this stuff going on in the world at the moment. You know, we've got the leaders of North Korea and South Korea coming together, we've got a French president in the States, you've got a war in Syria, um, you've got hunger everywhere, and massive news stories And he says, and the BBC chose as its headline news story the fact that the Arsenal manager, Arsene Wenger, has resigned. Now that may be quite important to you, I don't know. Um, But you can imagine the same happening, can't you? If the BBC gave its coverage to this meeting between Abram and Melchizedek as its headline news story, when all that other stuff was going on, people might say, what are you doing bothering about this little story here? But God knows everything that is happening in the world. He knows right now everything that is happening. He is in control of everything that is happening. But he's most interested in how individual people throughout the world respond to him and his blessings. Will they remain focused on the concerns of this life, be they massive political issues or individual concerns, or will they respond to him and his offer of rescue? The one who can make them right with God. Rescue and blessing point to Jesus. And finally, rescue is for the glory of God. What happens after Melchizedek pronounces his blessing on Abraham? Where it says very succinctly in verse 20, Then Abraham gave him a tenth of Everything. Abraham knows that Melchizedek is God's representative, a Jesus figure. He knows that his victory was down to God. And so unprompted, he gives him a tenth or a tithe of all that he has. And it's an acknowledgement that all that he has comes from God. None of it is his. None of it has been earned by him. God is the creator of everything, and therefore God owns everything. And so the praise and the glory should go to him. That is why we give offerings to God. The main way in which we give to the Lord is to give to the work of the the local church. But we may give in other ways to support God's work in this country and overseas. And it's not that we give God a tenth and uh, then the rest is all ours. It's a recognition that all we have is God's and we're merely stewards or trustees of what he's given us, called to use those resources wisely. And we see that, that attitude also in Abraham's interaction with the king of Sodom. Look at verse 21. The king of Sodom said to, to Abraham, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Now he's certainly got some gall, is not he? He's just been humiliated by a foreign king who's taken away everything. Abram steps in and rescues the day. And he has the nerve to say, well, you can keep the goods, but give me the people. He's not exactly in a position to make any demands, is he? Uh, but amazingly, Abram says, well, you keep the people and the goods. Just let my men have their due. Why does, why does he do that? Well, look at verse 22. With raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. He doesn't want the credit or the glory to go to anyone other than God. As we finish, I wonder if God's glory is always the motivation for us in all that we do. Or are we tempted sometimes to, to seek our own glory? Are we tempted to give ourselves the, the credit for what we have achieved? church members meeting last week we heard how Catherine Kirk is stepping down from Toybox this summer and like many other leaders of Toybox before her she's done a great job but I think she would be the first to say actually I didn't achieve anything in my own strength it was all achieved by God and for God working through me and the more we remember that whatever our ministry is the more easy it is to hold loosely onto that because none of that is our ministry. It's all God's ministry. That is true for our ministry. That is true for our giving. And that is true for our salvation. Just as Lot did nothing to earn his rescue, neither did we do anything to earn our rescue. It is God who blessed us with the promise of rescue. Let's end with his words from Colossians 1. For the Father has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen.